0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Coffee with a friend is like capturing joy in a cup. Welcome to the Coffee with Jenny B podcast, hosted by Jenny B, a lover of all things coffee. Each week, Jenny will chat about connecting over coffee, what brings her joy, and everything in between. A lot can happen over coffee, so grab a cup, sit back, and enjoy. Now here's your host, Jenny B. Hello
1: and welcome to the show. Did you know that one in four women and one in six men in the world Experience domestic abuse? According to a report from the Canadian Centre for Justice and Community Safety Statistics in 2022, three out of ten victims, or 30%, were victimized by an intimate partner. A total of 107,810 reported domestic abuse victims. Let that sink in for a second. 107,810 reported domestic abuse victims. Now that doesn't take into account victims of domestic abuse who don't report that they're experienced to the police due to a variety of reasons, including fear of shame or stigma or fear of retaliation from their partner. Now, you may be wondering why I'm talking about domestic abuse. Well, I was a victim of domestic abuse. It's not something that I share or talk about. And very few people know my story. And that's not because I'm ashamed or I want to hide anything. It's just that that was a different person. That happened to someone else. That person no longer exists. And so I never felt a need to share or talk about it because what's done is done. But what's interesting about the feeling that what's done is done and leaving it in the past is that it doesn't always stay in the past. Because I find that sometimes that trauma that I experienced so many years ago often pops up in certain situations. And it's a trigger that causes that reaction in me. And I've learned to recognize that that is what's happening. So my goal for sharing this with you is that if you have been a victim of domestic abuse or are currently experiencing domestic abuse or know someone who is going through that it's an opportunity for me to share my story, to share my struggles and also to share how I survived and am here to tell you that you can break that cycle of violence and become a better person a better version of yourself perhaps but more importantly to become who you are without fear without shame without feeling lonely desperate depressed or worse but let's talk about what domestic abuse actually is. So it's the type of abuse that happens in an intimate relationship. Now it can be in a marriage, in a common-law partnership, you're dating someone, it could be same-sex, doesn't matter, doesn't matter because regardless of the situation, it's an intimate relationship. Now this can include unhealthy And destructive behaviors such as coercive control, emotional and financial abuse, and physical or sexual abuse. And sometimes it can lead to a homicide. Now, abuse comes in many forms, and I've mentioned that there is the emotional, financial, physical, and sexual, but there's also the social aspect. That feeling of being isolated. And in some cases, a number of these can happen at the same time because you can experience emotional, physical, and sexual abuse or variations of the different abuse that can happen at different times. And so I want to share how I became a victim of domestic abuse. I married my ex husband when I was 19 and I didn't know what I was getting into you know I thought I loved this man we had a lot in common and I thought this is an opportunity for me to make my life and create marriage have kids etc and things were fine the first year we then bought a house and we were setting up the house and things were great but i noticed that he started drinking now he used to be on the weekends having some beer and and whatnot or we would have drinks together but i noticed that he was drinking more and more you know and bringing Cases of beer home, and it's a funny thing about alcohol how alcohol can change a person when I drink wine or you know I have some drinks i I become that that happy person, you know, giggling and happy and you know just enjoying life. Other people become sad. My mother was an alcoholic, and she became very sad and Very woe is me, and talking about how her life was terrible and would complain whenever she drank. But for some people, alcohol can turn them into a meaner version of themselves. And that's what alcohol did to my ex husband. And he would start by exhibiting different types of behavior where he would call me names. And of course I would respond and it's like, you know, don't say that, don't call me that. And, you know, being the stubborn, feisty redhead that I was and am, I would challenge him, which of course made things worse. And the violence or the cycle of violence, I should say, would start to build up. And got to the point where he would get angry and he would punch the wall. And in one instance, he punched his fist right through the wall. And that, that was a little scary to see that. You know, like, what's going on? Why are you so angry? Of course, they're not angry, but they start to blame you. Well, it's your fault. You know, your fault that I'm angry. Your fault that, you know, this and that. And it gets to the point where the stress starts to build up and you feel like you're walking on eggshells. You don't want to say or do anything that would upset that person. And so on weekends, it was worse. You know, during the week, I'm working during the day and you know, you're doing things at night, but weekends got to be worse. And then when that first Incident of violence happens. It catches you by surprise because you're not expecting it. And for me, we were arguing and he pushed me so hard that I fell back into the wall and I actually broke the wall. And when that happened, I think now I'm trying to recollect that it caught, well, both of us by surprise. And of course, then he's apologizing. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. Are you okay? And then just saying, you know, I don't know what happened. You know, I, I promise I'll never do it again. And then they their behavior changes. They use excuses or try to justify what they're doing. Or they are so repentant and so sorry that they even cry sometimes and they promise that, again, they'll never do it again. Or they use gaslighting, which I'll explain a little later on what that means to convince you that it's your fault. And then once the violence is over, then you go into what's called um, that honeymoon stage. They're remorseful, they show sorrow, but this honeymoon stage happens less frequently until it becomes more commonplace and then the abuse just continues now i got pregnant uh, with my son and thinking that that abuse would lessen but it didn't it wasn't physical but it was definitely emotional you know getting back again to the the name calling you know you're stupid you're fat you're ugly no one will ever have you you're worthless and when someone keeps calling you names keeps telling you these things you're in an emotional state where you start to believe it so i my son was born and of course everybody was happy that we had this this boy this child and things were going okay and then i got pregnant again And I remember telling him that I was pregnant and him saying that, well, are you sure it's not the stomach flu? I don't think he was very happy (laughs) that we were having another baby. But then my daughter was born and I had these beautiful children that I loved and wanted to protect. So now during this time, The violence continued to the point where I would occasionally have to leave the house to protect myself and unfortunately not being able to take the children, having to call the police a few times. I know that there were times where I stayed at Osborne House, which is an emergency shelter open 24-7. Of course, now it's called Willow Place. And sometimes I would go there by myself, and sometimes I would take the children with me. And I want to talk about um, a memory that my son shared with me. Uh, I was talking to him about wanting to share my story, and I asked him if he remembered anything from those days. And he said the one memory that stuck out for him was when he was lying in bed and me placing my hand on his, on his forehead and stroking him and saying, it's going to be okay. And that probably was a moment when we were at Osborne House because we're with strangers in a strange place, not knowing what's going on. And I knew that it couldn't continue, but when you are in that situation, It's hard to feel that you could survive on your own. I mean, it's one thing if you were by yourself, but it's another now that you have young children who are depending on you and looking to you for protection. It got to the point where my kids were starting to exhibit different behaviors. You know, at that time, my son was four and my daughter was two and a half, almost three, and two things happened that changed the trajectory of our lives. The first one was that I read this book called Smart Cookies Don't Crumble. The author is Sonia Friedman. Now, I can't remember if I bought this book or it was from the library. But I remember reading this book and realizing that, you know what? I can control my life. I don't need to have a man control it for me. And then the second thing that happened was my brother Ed had a conversation with me. He said, you know, if you can't do this for yourself, you have to do this for the kids. And in that moment, I could visualize what the future was going to be if I stayed in this relationship. And I knew that I had to get out. I had to get myself and the children out. At that time, my girlfriend Lorraine, uh, who was a social worker, and unfortunately, who's no no longer with us, always said to me, not when are you leaving him, It's." You need to leave him. And I reached out to her and said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go. I don't know where to go. Can, can you offer some advice? And she told me that there was a program called Women in Second Stage Housing, or WISH for short, which is now called Bravestone Center. And it was a program for women and their families who were victims of domestic abuse, and it provided them with a safe home that they could live in for a year. They had their own apartment, and it involved counseling for the women and counseling for the children. And Lorraine set me up with an interview to see if I qualify and, and if there's a space available in the program. As it turned out, even though the program had already started for this current intake of women and their families, there was a space open. And they said that, based on my situation, that they were able to get me in. And I was relieved, excited, scared, venturing out on my own with my children. I'd never lived by myself. And never mind now by myself and you know two children under the age of five but I knew that this was this was my chance this was my opportunity to get out and so I arranged the date to move in I arranged with my brother and his friend Terry who were going to help me move I told my ex-husband that I was leaving with the children Of course He tried to talk me out of it and, you know, got his parents involved and tried to explain that, you know, I couldn't take the children and all of this. And I was adamant. I said, no, I said, I'm leaving. This is it. We're done. And so I started packing and I told him that this was the day that I was moving and I wanted, I needed him to be out. And he said he would. But of course, the day that I was packing and moving, He decided to stay and stood there glaring at me as I was packing. And luckily, I had my brother again and his friend Terry there who were helping me move. But of of course, I couldn't take everything. I couldn't take a lot of the furniture. Of course, the kids' beds, their bunk beds. I took my personal belongings. But I, I had to leave so much behind. Because you can only take as much as you can, and I mean, I was fortunate that I had my brother and his friend and a truck that I could take as much as I could to start our life. But I know that for so many, you're leaving with barely nothing except the clothes on your back, so I felt that I was very fortunate in the sense that I could take as much as I could, but again i there was so much I left behind, but I was I was on my way, and I remember sitting in the truck, and the kids were there, and just this sense of freedom. And my brother, of course, was there with the kids to reassure them that everything was going to be okay, and we were off to our new adventure. So we got to our place, which was located on Young Street in the West End, not the best area of the of the city, but it was in with Manitoba Housing, and that is where we were going to stay. Now we were living in West Kildonan; that was where our house was located. So quite a quite a distance from where we were now staying at Wish. So we moved into our apartment, and we were on the sixth floor. We got settled in, and I remember. That first night my girlfriend Jan came over and she brought a bottle of wine and we sat on the carpet because I didn't have a lot of furniture. <laughs> and we had some wine and, you know, I guess to celebrate in a sense my freedom, my change in circumstances. And then I had my first counseling session, it was a group counseling session. so. All the women, there were eight families. So, all the women had a group counseling session once a week. And then women would have their own individual counseling sessions. And then the kids would also have a counseling session. And I remember our first group session, got to meet all the other women. And I remember one of the counselors, her name was Kathy. And Kathy was talking about the idea that we had choices to make. Choices of where we were going to go after we finished the program. And she held out a skeleton key. Now, for those that don't know what a skeleton key is, it comes in different lengths, but this, this was a rather long length. And the top of the key is hollowed out. And it is the kind of key that can fit and open any lock in the house. And this was when houses were built that all the rooms had the same lock, which you could then open with this skeleton key. Of course, now a lot of the rooms and houses, front door, back door, have specialized keys that will only open that particular door. But the idea of the skeleton key now, and she said, I'm giving each of you a skeleton key. And the idea that this skeleton key can open any doors for you, not just physical doors, but figuratively, the sky's the limit. There are no closed doors for you. And I've had that key on my keychain. For the last, it'll be 34 years this November, because November is when the kids and I moved out. 34 years that I've had this key on my keychain. And every day, it is a reminder to me of the journey that I had from leaving a domestic abuse situation and now having survived. And the children survive all these years. Now, it wasn't easy. There were struggles along the way, of course. There was the emotional effect on all of us. You know, I remember my son when he was younger. He looked a lot like his dad. And when he was in high school, I remember him asking me, When I grow up, am I going to be like my dad? And that almost broke my heart because I said to him, I said, no, you are not going to be like your dad. And I know that they had scars, still have some scars from those times. You don't think that children remember things. You don't think that they're aware of what's going on. But they are very aware and they may not vocalize it or they can, in which case my, I remember my son saying, you know, that we're leaving because dad hit mom, you know, and again, for those reasons, leaving and protecting them and allowing us to have the opportunity to survive and have a better life for ourselves. I remember when I was going through the various stages of, first of all, living in Wish, how my brother, again, was helpful in making sure we had what we needed. My girlfriend, Barb, and her husband, Marcel, providing us with things like a hammer, you know, a kettle, (laughs) little things that I left behind, my dad, who bought me a car because when I left, I didn't have a car. And I remember I mentioned about living in West Kildonan, the kids were attending daycare, a daycare on McRae in the North End. And I'm grateful that I had a job, I was working. So I would get up in the morning, get the kids up early, and we would take a bus to drop the kids off at daycare. And then I would take a bus to work and then after work I would take a bus to daycare, pick up the kids and then another bus home. And I did that for a little while. And the reason that I didn't tell my dad what was going on is because I didn't want to burden anybody. I guess, I don't know, maybe part of it was shame, you know, the feeling that I wanted to do this on my own. Maybe I didn't know how to reach out for help, but he bought me a car, which, gave me that freedom that made things a little bit easier. Hi, it's Jenny. We'll get back to the show in a moment. But first, I invite you to check out my website, coffeewithjennyb.ca That's Jenny with a G, where you'll find all the links to my episodes. You'll also find a variety of coffee gifts, available for purchase, including my branded bag of Red Door Coffee Beans from Harrison's Coffee Company. As well, you'll find a link to join the Winnipeg Coffee Community Facebook group. I'll also be posting info about upcoming coffee tours and coffee nights, so keep checking my website for updates. You can also follow me on Instagram, at Coffee with Jenny B. Now let's get back to the show. There's one more thing that I wanna talk about that came out of the counseling sessions. So the first session is we're sitting around and we're talking about our experiences and things that happened. And, and for the eight women that were sharing their story, you could change the name, change the location, but it was the same man. All the experiences that we shared about the things that we went through were so similar. And it makes you wonder, why is that the case? Because I truly don't believe that men are born to be abusers, that they learn how to become an abuser somewhere. It makes me think about the movie Pretty Woman. Now, if you've seen the movie, you'll recognize the scene that I'm about to share with you. And if you haven't seen the movie, it's actually a pretty great movie, but this particular scene is the Julia Roberts character is sitting on the couch and Stucky, who is played by Jason Alexander is making his moves on her. And of course she's rebuffing him to which point that he becomes angry and he wallops her across the face. So she falls back and she's on the ground and he's on top of her. And then the Richard Gere character comes in and he pulls Stucky off of Julia Roberts and says, what are you doing? And then throws him out. And then the Richard Gere character is administering help for Julia Roberts. And he has some ice and a cloth and he's gently applying it to her cheek. And she says to him, she says, why do they do that? Do they pull you aside at school and they teach you these things? And Richard Gere says to her, not all men are like that. And it's true. Not all men or women who are abusers are like that. But there are those who are. And you can blame it on trauma and childhood and, you know, life is terrible. But in a lot of instances, life was not terrible. I honestly don't know why they abuse. I don't know what it is that something is, is triggered or... i always wondered, but it, it really struck me when we were sharing our stories, just how similar the stories were. Now, earlier I mentioned the idea of gaslighting. So during the counseling sessions, one of the sessions we watched... The movie actually called gaslighting it 's an older movie it 's uh, starring uh Ingrid Bergman and uh, Maurice Chevalier, where they were married, and he wanted something he it was actually he was looking for these jewels that were somewhere in the house and all these little things started happening, and ingrid 's character was noticing and Maurice's character was telling her that she was wrong or that she was making things up or he was convincing her that she didn't know what she was talking about, that things that were happening were her fault. And it got to the point where he was so good, so convincing that she actually believed that she was losing her mind to the point where he wanted to commit her to An institution so that he could have his way in the house and find those jewels. Now fortunately someone was able to save her and protect her from this. So the term of gaslighting is convincing you that it's all your fault, that you're you're the cause. When it comes to an abuser, abuser is going to play the victim and say that you caused them to do these things. So instead of you being the victim, they're the victim, and you're in a position to apologize for causing them any stress or pain, which is a crazy situation to consider when you're the one that is the victim of the abuse. So I want to leave you with some thoughts about how to recognize if you or someone you know is in an abusive situation here are some signs that you should look out for you have an overly jealous partner they intentionally break or threaten to destroy things you know they call you names they belittle you they threaten you they yell at you they constantly blame you when things are going wrong My fault that he lost his job. It's my fault that we're short of money. You know, everything is my fault. Physically assaulting you, including pushing, punching, hitting, slapping, hitting the walls. As I mentioned, my husband pushed his fist through the wall. Threatening to harm you, your family, if you have any pets. Threatening to self-harm or suicide, which he did. On various occasions where I said, That's it. I can't take this anymore. I'm going to go kill myself. And he'd go out to the garage and close the garage door and start the car. And of course, I'm panicking and I'm going, It's like, you know, no, no, no. And, you know, thinking about, <laughs> I should have just let him know. I'm just kidding. Well, not really. But also, you need to watch out for that. They make you ask permission to go out of the house, permission to spend money, take the blame when things go wrong, or do whatever they want you to do. I remember early on in our relationship, we would be invited out to parties, movies, events. We would go as a couple, and then he would say at the last minute, no, I'm not going. And I'd say, why? We're, we're invited out. We're doing, you know, whatever it is. And he says, well, no, I don't feel like going. So, you know, I'm not going, but, and you should stay home too. And I would plead with him. I'd say, oh, come on, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. It's going to be fun. And then he would refuse. And of course I stayed home. And then after a while he'd say, no, I'm not going. And I'd say, okay, well, I'm going, see you. And I'd go knowing that this would only escalate (laughs) the, the feelings of anger on his part that I was defying him and going out. But it's also making excuses for your partner's behavior, you know, where he's acting a certain way and, and friends are concerned. Oh, you know, he's not always like this. You know, he's just going through a really tough time right now. And, you know, things are okay. Things are okay. I never told my family what was going on because How could I? How could I? How could I explain? So you, you hide a lot. You pretend that things are fine. Except I remember one day, my mom called me in a panic. She said that she went to wake up my dad and he wasn't breathing, he wasn't moving. She called an ambulance and the ambulance took him to the hospital. And it was discovered that his blood toxic levels were so high that it's, it's a wonder that he, he didn't die. And then we found out that he had a suspicion that there was something going on that I wasn't, I wasn't safe. And he drank a 40-ouncer bottle of whiskey. Now, my dad was a big man. He was over six feet tall. He was not heavy set, but he was solid. He was a big man. And I think if I drank a 40-ouncer of whiskey, well, I don't like whiskey, so I wouldn't drink it. But if I did that, it would probably kill me. But it knocked him out. And of course, once they realized that the blood alcohol level was so high, he was put under observation you know and asked thinking that he was trying to kill himself i don't believe he was i think he was so upset that he didn't know what else to do and he drank the whiskey because i remember seeing him in the hospital and the first question he asked me is like are you okay and i said yes i am i wanted to reassure him that i was okay i didn't want him to worry about what I was going through. So thinking about the reaction of those that are around you, but something else you want to watch out for is that abusers can manipulate your feelings so that they they can control you. Watch out if you fear of making any decisions that your partner won't approve. Feeling isolated from your friends and family. Now, I wasn't isolated, but they can't isolate you. They can convince you that uh, your friends don't know you. They're not good friends. They convince you to move to a location that is far away from your family and so that they can control you without any interference. There's the fears of expressing your opinions because expressing your opinions can set off a firestorm of reaction. Fear of saying no to your partner. And the biggest one was fear of leaving the relationship, which is what I had. Thinking that, how could I survive? I've never lived on my own. I've got two young children. I can't do it. What am What am I going to live on? What can I do? And that kept me from leaving. And I remember after I left, my niece asked me, Why I stayed so long? Well, why didn't you just leave? Well, it's not that easy. It's not that easy to leave for all the reasons that I've mentioned. Feeling that all the gaslighting, the abuse, the emotional abuse, the feeling that no one will have me. I can't survive on my own. And being scared to do it. You know, it's better the devil you know than the one you don't. Because the situation's bad, but what if the situation you go into is worse? And that can stop you from moving forward. So, grateful I read that book, Smart Cookies Don't Crumble, and my brother convincing me that if I can't do this for myself, I need to think about the kids. And we've survived. My kids in their 30s have lives, jobs. Have made a life for themselves. And I'm so proud of who they've become. And I know that they have their moments of dealing with the effects of, first of all, the journey that we've had over the years, <laughs> trying to survive together as a family, and hoping that they find a way of being able to. Live with the feelings, resolve, find a way of putting them in the past if it's possible. Something that I need to do is find a way of lessening the effect of those triggers that can cause me to lash out. And my husband, Frank, we've been together 28 years. He's been such a great father figure. For my kids. He's been so supportive and so loving and caring. And when I trigger and lash out, it's not him I'm lashing out at, it's someone else. And I need to work on a way of dealing with that and putting it behind me if I can, once and for all. So until next time, think about what you can do to make a new life for yourself. If you are experiencing domestic abuse and if any of the signs that I've mentioned sound familiar to you, you may be experiencing abuse. Even if you deny it, but it is still abuse. So again, if you are or know someone who is experiencing abuse, call the Domestic Violence Crisis Line at toll-free 1 877 977 0007 or text 204 792 5302. You will get the support you need, such as shelter options and free transportation to an emergency shelter. I will include this information in my show notes. But if you are in immediate danger, call 911. Think about opening those doors for yourself, whether it's with a skeleton key or having family and friends who will help you, support you, and guide you to your new life.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you like Coffee with Jenny B and wanna know more, connect with Jenny on Instagram at Coffee with Jenny B. That's Jenny with a G. Until then, all you need is joy and more coffee.
1: It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a cash kid. You just have to learn how to become one.